This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 268. And the quote of the day is from Stravinsky, who said, There is music wherever there is rhythm, as there is life wherever there beats a pulse. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming. Hello, hello. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. Thanks for checking it out. And if this is the first one you've checked out, welcome to the community. Welcome to the family. And you can find all 269 episodes if you go to drummersresource.com or they're also on iTunes as well. And you can check them out. You can subscribe and you can follow along and get updates all the time whenever new sessions come out. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to go to drummersresource.com forward slash magazine and that will redirect you to Drum Magazine's website and they are giving away six months of free of a free subscription to drum magazine both print and digital and if you're in the united states you can get print and digital if you're outside of the united states then you only get the digital version but the and the reason why i'm having you go to drummersresource.com forward slash magazine is only because it's a lot easier of a url to remember for you so it's not this isn't an ad this isn't i'm you know they're not paying for this or anything they're just giving it away for uh the listeners of the podcast i'm close with the guys at, uh, with everyone at drum i should say and they're doing this as a gesture so head to drummersresource.com forward slash magazine and you will get six months free of drum magazine so definitely cool to check out So the guest for today is none other than Mark Kelso, and he's originally from Belfast, which is in Northern Ireland. He now lives in Canada. He has a really unique story how he used to actually tour around the world with or around the United States and the world with his family playing music. And he was sort of just along for the ride, but got to to learn the ways of the world that way. But he's an all around player and he's worked with a long list of people, including Pat Metheny and Michael Brecker, Randy Brecker, Michael Buble, Changuito, uh, Holly Cole, Larry Coriel. He's played with Olivia Newton-John, Molly Johnson, Shaka Khan, Herbie Hancock, Mike Stern. He's been on over 285 recordings, and he also leads his own band called the Jazz Exiles. He's also been on multiple radio jingles and movie soundtracks. He's been in Drums Etc. magazine, Canadian Musician magazine, Drumhead magazine, Drum Scene magazine, and Modern Drummer magazine. He's also been a featured clinician and performer at the Montreal Drum Fest, IAJE, Music Fest, COSA, Percussive Arts Society, Regina Drum Festival, the Stickman Drum Experience, Whack Bam Thud Festival, Victoria Drum Festival, and the Cape Brayton Festival. He's also released his own instructional DVD entitled Musician First, Drummer Second, which we talk about that in this conversation about the theory behind it and the approach behind it and why he almost didn't release it. So let's get into it with the one and only Mark Kelso. Mark, how are you, man? Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Nick, I'm great, man. Nice to meet you and nice to hear you and see you. Likewise. I have been, uh, I've been following you for, for quite some time and, and I got to check out the stuff you did on Drumeo and all that and super inspiring stuff. And I want to I wanna get into your, your philosophy of rhythm and teaching and, and things of that nature. But 
for the audience who may not know who you are or may not be as as uh, well versed in your stuff, just give a little backstory of of sort of who you are, what you do, and and where this whole thing started for you. Oh, okay. Um, I was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, so I'm Irish, and uh, I my my dad was a drummer, and my grandfather was also a drummer. He played in the uh, Orange Parades back in Belfast, back in the '60s, and then my dad became a drummer in what were known as Irish show bands. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, I guess he always tells the story. I was too young to remember. Uh, but of me, when I was around three or four years old, he was at a rehearsal and he was talking to the guys and they were playing something. And I got up and started tapping around on the kit. And he realized that it sounded like it was in time. So he stopped and he looked at me and was like, is he playing drums? You know? And, uh, <laughs> and how old were you? About four, three or four, nice. he says, and uh, and he and he had the guys just my typical my typical dad. Hey guys, change it from four four to three four. <laughs> right? and he see said that see I, if you can follow along here. Let's <laughs> yeah, yeah, test my kid, right? And so he, he he the band did that, and he said I stopped, and he was like, "Ooh, he realized something was different." And then I started accenting in three four, and he was just like, "Oh." My son, is, is, he's going to play drums. Yeah. So flash forward, I think uh, around uh, – we were his band was actually on tour in the States when I was in my uh, grade six year at school. And then uh, um, I asked him to teach me to play drums while we were on the road. Mm -hmm. We did six months on the road with the whole family and everything, and I was going to school in different cities. Oh, wow. So what was I, that like? It was uh, – well, it just seemed normal, right? I mean three weeks here, I go to school, meet people, go here for a month – meet people, go into class, and somehow I was able to still get my grade six year. I didn't lose anything. That's interesting. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, it was just kind of cool to be around, meeting people, traveling, yeah. seeing the world, basically. My first road gig at uh, 12, 12 or 13, you know? And, well, I, and I think that, like, the the experience that you got from that versus, like, I'm sure you don't remember what you learned in, you know, in that grade, but I'm sure that you remember memories of that tour and, and things that you did with your family and life lessons and all sorts of things. Oh, yeah. Well, I've, we went to Florida. That was the last place we went. So I remember that well. And some of the other West Virginia, some of these places, you know, so I remember certain I remember certain people that I met even that long ago. This is going back to the 70s. Right. Anyway, my dad taught me and then he saw that I was, you know, grasping stuff quickly. And so he started to overteach me, I guess, too much, too fast, burn me out. And I kind of threw the stick. He says I threw the sticks down. I said, I'm done. I'm finished. And then we, when we got back to Toronto, uh, this is when I went into grade seven, came home one day, said, hey, dad, I'm, I'm in the school band. And my dad's like, oh, great. He's back with music. And then uh, I said, I'm playing tenor saxophone. He said, <laughs> he what? He's like, yeah. I said, well, there's a drummer in the band, but I'm going to audition. I think I can get the gig. So I ended up, you know, playing uh, uh, in the high school, uh, my junior high school stage band, and they also had a concert band. So I played tenor saxophone for six years in in junior high school, high school. And you didn't know and how to play at all before that, right? You just learned it. No, I, I, yeah, I just learned that from scratch. Um, looking back, I realized how invaluable it was to play a secondary instrument that was a melodic instrument because mm -hmm. I learned things about pitch, tone, uh, breathing the length of a note, articulation. And I feel that by doing that simultaneously while playing drums, I was able to, when I was playing in the stage band, listen to the horn section the same way I would if I was playing saxophone and just kind of try and approach playing the drums in a way that 
made sense with so if the, the horns were playing long notes or short notes i tried to adapt what i played on the drums to the way they were sounding so i was right. getting uh educated about articulation uh almost before i knew what it was hmm. so I, I i found that I, I looking back i think it was an invaluable experience to make me see music uh not always from the from the you know from the chair on the kit I was away from the kit, so I could hear the drums. I could hear when they were too loud. I could hear when things were speeding up. If there was another guy playing, so wow, I can't play my part anymore. It's too fast. Right. So I was able to correlate between the two. I mean, I never continued playing saxophone once I left high school, mm -hmm. but there definitely was something to learn. And then after that, I just kind of broke into the scene here. There was a local drummer who had uh, broke his broke his arm, I believe. Terry Clark, great jazz drummer mm -hmm. here. Um, and he broke his arm. And so this guy, this guitar player was like a jazz fusion thing. Joey Goldstein, he was working with my dad in a nightclub and, and he's like, okay, Sam, who's my dad, you're always talking a big story about your son and he can read and he can play all kinds of music. I need a drummer. Can he, can he do it? My dad said, yeah. So I went and I rehearsed and I sight read all this stuff in seven and nine or whatever it was. And, uh, and that kind of got me started on the scene. Here in Toronto, back in the early, uh, you know, late seventies, early eighties. How old were you at the time? Uh, yeah, I was about to eighteen. Okay. 18. When did you just guys move? To, when did you guys move to Canada? Uh, when I was nine. Okay, I got you. So I came here, yeah, at nine years old. My dad came over first, and then we came over six months uh, later. It's an interesting concept about learning an instrument and outside of drums and how it translates to playing drums, and. I wonder if there is a correlation or I wonder if there's something to be said about playing both of those instruments sort of at the same time. Like for me, I played piano for nine years before I ever picked up a drumstick. And then right. there was a lull and I play, I went and played sports for years and didn't play any instruments and get, and I was, you know, I played concert, uh, I played concert piano and played recitals and all that sort of stuff and getting to drums I don't know how much of that translated for me. Maybe I'm not thinking about it did like because I still understand rhythm or I understood rhythm sort of when I sat down. But I wonder if there's a different if you have a different eye when you're already a drummer and you're playing an instrument and so you're saying, "Okay, I'm playing this instrument, now I'm hearing the drums in a totally different light." You know, does that make any sense at all? <laughs> it makes total sense, absolutely. I mean, the thing you're saying is cuz you're you're not on the kit, but you're hearing the drums from outside. And I think that's really a really important perspective for drummers to have, which is why I encourage them to play a secondary instrument or play some hand percussion. Because if you're playing some congas and you're playing a static pattern and the drummer's time is moving up, you realize how you can't play. So you realize how important it is to be in good time when you're playing the drums. So when you go back to playing the kit, you got to You've got a sort of a mental note. Okay, I remember what happened when I was trying to play my congas and he sped up and slowed down mm -hmm. or was too loud. So this that perspective, I think, is, is, is actually really, really important to learn. Now, you were saying about uh, playing the piano for nine years. I guarantee it made you better. Um, if anything, it made you probably listen to melody mm -hmm. and, and, and attune your ear to harmony so you understand – I would say that would give you a leg up on understanding song form. Mm -hmm. I mean, did you find it easy to learn tunes when you were playing drums? I still find it very easy to learn songs. Like I just, ha I literally just got a gig because I just moved here. I got a gig two weeks ago or last week, something like that. I had to learn 30 songs in like four days. 
And right. I, I guess I can, cause I can hear the changes easily. So if there's, you know, exactly. And you know, and you know, the progressions, you can hear the progressions. You go, okay, here comes this, this chord. It's leading me to the chorus. I, even if you don't know the song, you can hear the harmony building mm-hmm. and going here. It's about to change. Oh, this is, we're in the bridge. Right. So you, you know, so I think it's subconscious, makes- but I don't think I have enough knowledge to say, Oh, okay. Here, okay. We're going to go to like the dominant here. Then it's going to resolve. And like, I don't think that cognitively, cognitively I'm not there, but I think subconsciously I'm just, I just, it's a, it, I feel like it's natural, but maybe it's not, you know, it's a learned I say, skill. I would, I would, I would say playing piano probably helped you to some degree in sure. that manner. Sure. So do you think that I know that you said, you know, you're four and you sit down behind the kit and you sort of were naturally able to play. How much of how much of that do you think got you where you are now? Do you think it was 50 percent talent, 50 percent natural ability? Was it was it always easy for you or was did your talent only get you so far? And then you were like, okay, I really need to to shed. and, And did you hit walls or anything like that? Um, gosh, you really look, I have to go back into the time capsule here. <laughs> I'm 54 now, right? So <laughs> to think exactly what it was like, I mean, I, I can remember, sure, it's at first certain things struggling with, you know, if I was learning something, um, I can remember struggling and I can remember being so pissed off one time that I threw my tom-tom against the, uh, across the room. I was so furious that I couldn't play something. <laughs> I had a wicked temper and I picked my tom-tom and I hurled it at my bedroom closet door. Right. <laughs> I, I distinctly have a vivid recollection, sadly, of doing such an idiotic thing. Right. Um, and man, oh man, did I get in some serious trouble for that. <laughs> and rightly so. I was sure. totally out of line. Right. But um, I, what I remember... Uh, uh, because it was such it was such a strong um, imprint imprint for me is that my hands developed quickly, so that I think came uh, pretty easily. Um, but my dad also had good hands, so I think watching him and correlating the look of how he, his hands looked and the way it sounded helped me to do my thing. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't like many drummers. I find sometimes they're they're spending time in their basement and they're learning a lot of stuff by themselves because it's kind of easy to be self-taught on the drums, but mm-hmm. you can really pick up a lot of bad, bad habits, especially when it comes to technique that take, takes a long time to undo. So for me, I had, my dad had good hands. I washed his hands. I learned a lot, picked it up. And then the, the earliest records, cause I, I, I was really into jazz and kind of funk and soul right off the bat. So I remember the three records that I practiced to when I was 13, 14, that had major impact on me um, was uh, Live and Living Color, Tower Power. So I was a huge Garibaldi fan, and and his influence on me was major. Me too. And I'm happy to say that I that I I know him pretty well now, and, and I consider him a friend. And and it's it's kind of a thrill to have gone from young 13 year old fan to meeting David and knowing him for, for yeah, yeah. Uh, quite. Yeah. He lives now. he he lives right down the street from me. Oh, okay. Beautiful. Yeah. He's he's a great guy, right? Yes, he yes, he's amazing. He's greatest guy. Yeah. So that was that was that was the first record. The second one was a Gino Benelli record. I'm not sure if you're hip to Gino's stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, with a, a great Canadian drummer, uh, Graham Lear. So uh, David took kind of care of the funky stuff, and Graham was the guy who kind of bridged the gap for me because he did jazz and rock at that time. The jazz rock 
terminology was the thing. Mm -hmm. and, and he just played great on this Powerful People record. So I played along to that all the time. And then uh, – and Graham, of course, is, has become a good friend now uh, over the years as well. So I can't help but gush every time I'm meeting his – you know, talking to his wife. I'm going, do you know how much of a fan I am of your <laughs> husband? It's, you know, you, you, just, you just revert to that nerdy yeah. fanboy from when you're 13 when you meet these guys, yep. even though they're friends, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I, I play still with Pat LaBarbera here in Toronto who played with Buddy Rich and Elvin Jones, but I still feel like I'm the 18-year-old who was in his combo at college. Right. I've known him for over 35 years, but mm -hmm. still there's that it's Pat LaBarbera kind of thing. And the I think holding record, on to that is good. I think it keeps well, you I mean, it's, humble. I think it's right. it's right to respect people. Sure. Who have been major influences, and I, mm -hmm. I see no problem with that. Um, and then uh, the other one was was Buddy Rich, Mercy, 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 live at Caesar's Palace, 1967-68. That record, and then uh, and Pat was on that record, incidentally. And so I started practicing and playing along with those records when I started playing drums. So that was kind of my 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 ground zero, which mm -hmm. most people go. That's not what I was doing. Mine was uh, uh, quite uh, quite not as advanced, right? Right. So um, it was it was very different from from what I did. So uh, sorry, there's someone walking down the hall. There. No worries. <clears throat> uh, so Buddy Rich, David Garibaldi, Graham Lear. That was my ground zero. Where a lot of people are maybe just getting getting into just playing some simple rock grooves. Mm -hmm. I sort of started at it. I, I want to say. I don't like to say elevated status, but the music was a little bit more complex than, say, what my friends in school were listening to. They weren't listening to Tower of Power, right. Gino Vanelli, Buddy Rich. So I started there, and then that took me on to the Brecker Brothers. So um, that's where I started, and, and that was like uh, that was my normal. So um, I guess some people would say that was more advanced than the regular stuff, but for me – that's what I was into, and that's a standard that I was trying to hold myself to mm. by listening to them as my influence. You know, part of it is you don't know. You just go, I like, I love this music. I want to play this I music. I want to try to figure it out, right? I want to try and figure this out, yeah. So right. that's how a lot of it worked for me. But certain things came easy, and then certain things uh, were difficult. There's an interesting trait that I've been seeing with, you know, the 200 and whatever, 50, 60 interviews that I've done is the difference between someone who came up strictly playing technique for years, just on the pad or really focusing on that. Or the guys who said, you know, yeah, I worked a little bit on technique, but mostly I just played along with records. And it seems to me, and I don't, I'd love to get your opinion on it, but it seems to me that the guys who came up playing records all the time just play that much more musically you know in an i i feel like they didn't have to they didn't have to go back and learn how to play musically does that make sense it makes total sense it makes total sense i think um again when you're just sitting down with a practice pad or a metronome or a drum book or whatever you're learning rhythmic information you're learning drum information you're learning technical information but when you're playing to a record, even if you don't realize it, you're learning musical information. You're listening. You're learning lyrics. You're learning what a song is about. Uh, um, you're learning the way something feels. That 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 was that was a major uh, revelation for me. 
you know, listening to Steve Gadd and trying to cop his things and going, why doesn't it sound the same? And then realizing, oh, it doesn't feel the same. Technically, it's the same thing. I've learned the proper beat or lick, but it doesn't feel the same. So that was a massive education for me. So listening to music, um, hopefully lets you think you start listening to the bass you start listening to the guitar you start listening to the keyboards you start listening to the melody um and and that that is the huge huge lesson to be learned about playing musically you play Mm -hmm. for the song you know gad always talks about playing for the song no matter what and you know when i listen to like early stuff with chick Corea and and uh you know skilly dan and uh tom scott all the kind of Paul Simon, all the kind of what I would say is kind of hip stuff that he was right. doing. And then you hear him on Barbara Streisand. And you go, why? He's not doing anything. Where's the fun stuff? And you realize years later, that's the proper thing to do. Yeah. And Steve Gadd doesn't need to show off all the time when he is given a moment where he can show some incredible musicality or something really hip and amazing. He does it, but it's not all the time and he doesn't have to do it when i saw him last uh last fall with james taylor i literally i thought i was gonna die it was so heavy the feel was so heavy i thought i was gonna have a heart attack mm-hmm. you know there he's 21 just killing me with nothing yeah we he's, we he's sat not, behind not, him we sat behind him sorry uh with chick Corea, and it was just like I literally sat right behind him and he was he could play nothing and you're just like, oh my god! Like he could just sit behind right. the drums, and it just feels. You're like, man, look at the way he's sitting there, man. <laughs> you know? Right, right. You're just going. It's. I remember thinking that's the most perfect drum groove I've ever heard, <laughs> yeah. and it's just doom, cut, goom, cut. Like, ah, it's yep. so heavy. Yep. Right. Another you... guy like that was was the late Carlos Vega, who I oh, love. He, he could play stuff like that, and you just go, come on, how can that? Simple groove be so unbelievably heavy. I'm sure you've seen the video of Steve Gadd at the Zildjian, what's it like the Zildjian days or something like that from back in the day. And and he's playing that just little groove with his left hand. And it's like he's playing nothing. He's absolutely like he's nothing. <laughs> and it feels so good. And then all he does, he just drops his left hand down, hits the snare, and right back to the hi-hat. And you're like, and it sounds like it's humongous. And it's like the most amazing fill you've ever heard. And but he's play, he plays nothing. Yeah, we can talk forever about how amazing he is. Right, right. <laughs> More from Mark in a minute, but first, a pause for the cause. This podcast is one hundred percent free thanks to the good folks at DW Drums, located in Oxnard, California. I highly recommend if you're ever in the Los Angeles area, take the fifty minute ride up to Oxnard, check out the factory, do a factory tour, but also head over to DWDrums.com to learn about how they have been innovating the drum industry since the seventies. Check them out at DWDrums.com. Why not all successful drummers read music? Today's drummer needs every edge he or she can get to surpass the competition. Whether you need to start with beginning basic rhythms and notation, need to improve your chart reading or interpretation skills, or want to challenge yourself with sight reading, the drum reading courses offered by the drum program at Musicians Institute can help you become an expert reading drummer. You can learn more about this and all their great programs at mi.edu. Now more with Mark Kelso. 
there was one thing that you said that was really interesting about how when you were playing, you said, why doesn't this sound the way that, you know, Steve sounds or, or, or David Garibaldi or whoever you're comparing yourself to? And you said, not that it doesn't sound like them, it doesn't feel like them. So how did you start approaching that to say, okay, I want to start, I want my, I want what I'm playing to feel like Dave Garibaldi, or I want it to feel like Steve Gabb, because I think it's easy to hear a drum beat and sit behind the drums and play it. You know, like, I don't think that Dave Garibaldi's parts are that hard, but once you start realizing, oh, okay, there's this, there's this lilt in there and there's the, these things are accented and this is going on, then it's like, oh, there's all, there's nine different elements to this groove that he's doing apart from like the kick and the snare and the hi-hat. Oh yeah. You know, this is something that I'm fascinated with and I've, I've had a long-term love affair with it to try and figure it out. You know, I mean, back in the day, guys, you know, going back to the seventies, there was this kind of two schools of thought, the chop school and the field school. And the field guys were always like, well, chops kills your feel. And the, the chops guys were like, the field kills your chops. But for me, Steve Gabb was the epitome of both great technique and awesome feel. So I thought, well, why doesn't, why that just makes so much sense to me. I'm going to chase that. So he became kind of my template uh, as a musician, but uh, also to try and understand feel. Now, the thing that I, I, there were a couple of key moments for me that really uh, uh, made me focus on this. And I got to say, one of the earliest things was actually from a movie. You remember uh, Mar the martial artist Bruce Lee? Of course. Enter the Dragon. Mm -hmm. There was a scene in that that I never forgot when I first saw it, how it resonated with me. And I don't even know why, but he was teaching his student. And at the, the whole, at the end of the lesson, the student's not getting it. And his ultimate, his, the ultimate thing that he says is, don't think, feel. Mm. And I was just like, I was like, wow, that's so deep. That's so deep. So I always, that always stuck with me. Mm -hmm. And then I, I saw... I saw uh, uh, I saw Buddy Rich a lot of time, uh, a lot of time. But I mean, a lot of times. And and I, I don't want to say that Buddy didn't have a lot of feel, but obviously his technical prowess really was overwhelming. So that's what I was focusing on as a young teenager when I saw it. Uh, and then I saw Bernard Purdy. <laughs> and right, right. So you know where this is going. So Bernard, <laughs> you're like, I quit. I'm done. I don't need to. Do. I saw Bernard playing, and I remember thinking. God, this guy, you know, because he would solo, I was thinking, well, it's not Buddy Rich. You know, I had a little bit of an attitude. Mm -hmm. It was kind of sloppy and messy. And then he went into this groove thing, and it was kind of the thing that makes your hair and your neck stand up, and you're just going like, oh, my God, what? <laughs> what is that? Wow, wow. And then you, but then you start, I started wrestling with myself mentally going, no, 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 but it's sloppy. It's, it's technique. You can't study solo like Buddy Rich. And then it's like, but oh, my God, that's so great. And I remember walking away kind of puzzled, perplexed as to why did I like that so much? Years later, I can look back and go, because the feel was off the planet. It was right. so heavy. And I never forgot the beat that he played. I always remembered it. It was so powerful. It stuck with me to this day from when I was 18. Flash forward a couple of months, and then I saw I saw Earth, Wind & Fire with all the, the original guys. Mm -hmm. And that just did me in. And I was like, oh, man, this groove thing. Because guys were already busting my chops about it, going, you know, you need to work on your time feel. You need to work on your groove. 
And this thing, you know, because being kind of a fusion hot dog, when I was playing pop gigs, I wasn't sounding like the proper guy. Mm. You know, I wasn't sounding like... You're doing like all your fusion help. chops. Yeah, I wasn't sounding like Russ Kunkel or, or, or any of these guys who could just lay it down and play straight ahead. You know, God, me trying to play a Levon Helm groove at, 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 at 17? Ooh, horrible. <laughs> you know? Um, but... Then you look at it back now and I can go, yeah, because I just didn't get it. I didn't understand about time feel. And, you know, you look at guys like Bonham, super laid back, you know, um, Stuart Copeland, kind of edgy on top. Um, Carlos Vega, super laid back. Levon Helm, super laid back. Ricky Fatar, laid back. Um, you know, Keltner. And you started to – I started to hear these terminologies being ahead of the beat, behind the beat, down the middle. And, you know – I remember distinctly asking an older musician when I was, you know, to college going, you know, I don't understand this. What does it mean? Lay back and, 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 you know, play, play ahead of the beat. I, I don't understand. What is that? And the guy looked at me and went, Hey man, if you have to ask and walked away. <laughs> so I it's remember brutal. feeling like it was brutal. I was thinking, wow, I feel like an idiot. Because clearly this is something I'm supposed to know, and I don't. And I just asked him, and he just made me look like an idiot because I didn't know. And I was like, you know, I just had to go and figure it out for myself. Mm. And I, I figured it out by listening to Steve Gadd. I remember the moment in time when it clicked. I was in Canada's Wonderland in an amusement park. I was playing a summer job there my second year. And I was doing a show with a click track, and everything else was on tape. And I got the, this new Manhattan Transfer record. And this track came on with him and Abraham Laboreal on the boulevard. And I was listening to it and I was like, oh, my God, listen to that. And that was the that was the defining moment for me. It clicked and I was just like, oh, man, that I can I can, I just my my I guess my hearing elevated a little bit, maybe mm -hmm. from working with the click track in a, in a uh, musical setting all summer, kind of heightened my senses of knowledge of time placement. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of got me into that. And my feel being an energetic young man coming with a fusion background really was very much on top of the beat. So I had to really struggle and work a lot with my own concept of my own natural feel, which is super hyper. Right. I mean, I mean, the excessive amount of sugary cereals and Coca-Cola and <laughs> poppers whatever I was drinking as a teenager – chocolate bars, you name it, you know, whatever. Um, I hate to think of what I would have been like if I actually drank coffee on top of that. It would have been just a disaster. <laughs> so anyway, I started exploring the time thing and just trying to focus more on being a groove guy. And I remember uh, trying not to solo for like a couple of years, mm -hmm. just waving them off. No, 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 I don't want to. And then a funny thing happened. I guess somewhere around that time, I started intermingling the concept of technique and groove and then I discovered a fascinating and amazing thing that was once I started approaching my soloing and my technical things with the concept of does this feel good because we're always thinking about the groove going here's the pocket it's got to feel good fill yeah. okay pocket okay solo 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 and groove mm -hmm. there was a, a disconnect between these little oh, they're all little sections yeah the thing that I noticed about Gad is when he soloed, it always still felt amazing. Yeah. So I started understanding that concept of going, what happens if I try and groove my solo? So that became a, a conscious decision to try and groove it. 
And my fear was that if I was thinking too much about grooving a solo, that somehow my technique would start to slip. And a funny thing happened is that my technique, I think, actually got better. Right. And everything, probably just because it sounded better and felt better. Mm -hmm. So I think I've just spent my life trying to improve my feel and keep my technique up. But ultimately, it, the most important thing I ask myself every day is, how does this feel? Because mm -hmm. ultimately, that's I think that's what connects with people. I, I tell my students a groove, a, a good groove is timeless. Chops come and go, right? But a good groove, timeless. I can listen to Zigaboo Modalese from something he did in the '70s or late '60s and go, oh my god! I can listen to Serpentine Fire by Earthwind and Fire. It's 1977, 40 years ago, and go that holds up. Sounds amazing. Today, when I when I listen to that 40 years later. It's still as good, if not better, than I yeah. remember it because it feels amazing. So when I teach at Humber College, my, the school where I teach, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm consciously always kind of shoving it down the throat like to think about feel and time feel and placement of what it is they're doing and how important uh, it is when something feels good. Mm -hmm. And – and one of the simplest things I do about uh, is one of the simplest things that I uh, how I show it is like a shaker, right? You know, um, if I got a shaker anywhere in here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember Memo Acevedo coming to my high school in grade 11, playing. He was from Columbia. I don't know if you know Memo. He lives in New York now. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Really great percussion player, drum set guy, really great open. And he started playing samba in high school. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> what is that? That is awesome. But again, it was one of those things where I couldn't – you know, when he left, I'm sitting down at the snare drum trying to get that kind of kaisha, the snare drum thing going. Yeah. And I'm going, how did he do that? I saw it. But this doesn't sound anything like what he just did. What is that? So I started exploring with Brazilian music. And the more I played it and listened to it, the more I started to understand how integral the feel was to any of the grooves. You know, so I started getting the shaker and practicing shaker to try and play samba, right? Mm -hmm. So guys would go, um, you know, uh, you know, North America, we would think of like shaker as being just straight sixteenths. You know, wow, it's super even. Oh, it's perfectly in time. Every note is is is. <laughs> Identical. I've nailed this groove, right? right. And then you, then you hear samba, and they're going like, and then it was like, okay, so it's the same thing. But it's an interpretation. Mm -hmm. And and so that was a big, big influence on me, the sound of how it sounded like. You know, how, what does it sound like? What does it feel like? How do I discover how to play it like that? And it was just a lot of experimentation trying to uh, recreate the sound I was hearing from recordings or what I had seen live. Right. And so uh, the way I tell it to my students now, which I like, is imagine if a guy from uh, – a guy's learning to speak French and he's mastered the – speaking French. He's learned all the proper words. He understands, the, you know, how to, how to converse. And so he goes to Paris and he, and he, and he starts speaking French 
except he's from Scotland. Right. So he speaks French with a thick Scottish accent. And the people in France are going, dude, I, what, do you, what language is that? And, mm-hmm. But the guy thinks he's speaking French. But the people listening to him are going, ah, it's so horrible. <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing to our beautiful language? But the poor guy who's learned French has missed one important element, like the accent. So for me, feel is like the accent. So if mm-hmm. you want to speak Portuguese, you've got to say it with the same accent. You can't just say the words. Right. So if you're playing a groove, you can't just play the beat. You have to go and go, okay, well, now I've got the beat. How does the beat feel or how does the beat sound? Let me go back and try and recreate the way it feels. And so that's kind of like the accent. If you have the proper accent for the groove, then you will make it ultimately hopefully sound better. Right. I think there's a lot of sort of that surface learning where it's like, okay, I need to learn how to play swing. And then you go and you're like, sick the thing, sick the thing, sick the thing. Okay, two and four on the hi-hat, boom. Okay, I'll just play some stuff on the snare and the kick. Yeah, I can play swing. And it's like, yeah, wait yeah, right. a minute. You know, let's, <laughs> let's, and then, and I, I was guilty of this when I was younger too. I was, okay, all right, I need to learn like this groove. And then I would sort of play it. And I was like, yeah, if I hit a little bump that I did, I was like, yeah, I get that. I get the gist of it. I can play it, you know? But getting inside of it, like you said, getting learning the accent, learning why it feels the way it does, learning when you record yourself, why does it why does it not sound and feel like the the stuff on the record? It's like why is my snare drum so loud or so far ahead? Or I remember listening <laughs> to old recordings of myself where it's like I'm like where am I going? You know, like yeah. I'm in a rush to get everywhere. Like instead of <laughs> letting it naturally happen like i'm like oh we got to get to the chorus you know let's let's I won the race yeah. i'm first got your first yeah. <laughs> and but it's a complicated thing yeah you know, in fact i was having a conversation with my wife last night about practicing and i was like i hate practicing i've always hated practicing but i do it she's like how do you do that all the time and i'm like because i like seeing the the fruits of of what are going on you know but like it's it's challenging man like getting inside like you threw a tom against the wall you know <laughs> well, to be fair, I haven't done that since I was 12 or 13. Fair enough. Now, I, I actually love practicing. And, and, and when I'm teaching at Humber, I find myself I find I found myself starting to get jealous with all the practice time my students were getting. So I started incorporating extra hours for me to be at school just so I could practice. So it's like, OK, I'm going to teach your lesson. Now I'm going to practice for an hour and then I'll teach another lesson instead of back to back like I was doing before. Right. I split it up so that I get to practice. And my students are like, why do you practice? I says, well, I want to get better. Yeah, but you can already play. And and I quote them, the, the great quote that I heard from uh, the great uh, jazz drummer in New York, uh, John Riley. I heard him say once, um, just because something's already good doesn't mean it can't still be improved on. Yeah. I was like, ooh, ding, mental note. Remember that. That's gold. Mm-hmm. And. So I love practicing uh, and, and I don't get enough time. I got two kids. I'm working all the time, teaching and playing, running my band. I got all kinds of stuff going on. So when I get to sit down at the drums for 15, 20 minutes, it's like, great. Yeah. Let me just work on something. Let me let me just, you know, work on one thing or, or something like that. You know, but I, I, I always love practicing. I would come home from school every day and go straight to the drums. That I do remember. I did that, too. You know, like I remember running. I I I always loved playing, so I would run home and I'm like, I want to play. I think when I really got into like some heavy stuff, 
it, it like it was frust. I mean, it was a frustrating thing for me. It still is. Like I still have an issue practicing. Uh, not not that I have an issue practicing. I still, it's like going to the gym for me. I'm like I still got to get in there and like, I I do it because I know I should and I love the results of it. But being in the moment, I'm like, man, I'd so much rather be. It's I, I'm just being honest, you know. I guess Muhammad Ali said he hated every minute of training, but he liked being a champion. So I'm like, if if Muhammad Ali could say that, maybe I could get away with it. And that's a great statement, but I mean, I bet you if you asked every drummer, you'd probably have uh, probably over fifty percent would say exactly what you said. Yeah. Say I'm and I. It's so tedious. It's so boring. And I think that's maybe why I always tried to make my my practice schedule uh, musically related. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I was playing rudiments, I hated practicing rudiments. I really did. But when I put on Earth, Wind, and Fire record and started playing along to Earth, Wind, and Fire rudiments no longer seemed to be boring they were sure. like way more fun yeah uh, and at the same time i was i was strengthening my listening skills because i'd be doing one thing while listening to music and hearing song form hearing the melody uh, again all this other stuff was going in subconsciously while i was doing the exercise what would you do you like know, play paradiddles along with the record or along with the song or whatever yeah, yeah yeah i'd pick a rudiment and go through one tune uh, with the paradiddle, okay, now I'm going to work on the double paradiddle. I'm going to do some flam taps here. I'm going to do the pot of flaflas through this one. Uh, all, and the tempos were always different. And mm -hmm. the grooves were always, excuse me, different. And and then I started, when I got started thinking about more, more groove stuff, then I started realizing, well, let me try and lock the technical thing into a pocket so that I could play something. You, again, you listen to Steve Gadd play any of that military stuff on the snare, it grooves like crazy. Yeah. But it's a technical you know, it's an etude kind of uh, snare drum piece. You know, Crazy Army is one of the funkiest things ever. Yeah, I was just going to say Crazy Army. Yep. Right? And you go, how does he make it sound that great? Because there's plenty of guys who would make it sound like, yeah, it sounds like a military exercise or mm -hmm. an etude. Yeah. But he puts so much spin on it, you just go, whoa. Yeah, 100%. feels great. So I, I, I always, like I said, I play with music. And, you know, and this this thing that I got into lately with the displaced click, um, the metronome being on the, the second 16th, last 16th, uh, last triplet, triplet, middle triplet, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff that's on my DVD. Um, that became an exercise in listening and having an, another rhythmic source when I was by myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, now you, you got all kinds of apps to practice anything. But back in the day, you were limited to records and, and the metronome, you know. Yeah. So Nate Wood was on the podcast a little while back talking about the same thing about displacing that that sixteenth note. Um, can can we go into a little bit of detail about that? Because I think it's such a an invaluable tool and it's super challenging to do. Um, oh, yeah. So let's talk about it for a minute. Absolutely. I can't even remember how it came about. I mean, one of my students. I'm just going to get a little click here. One of my students might have even have uh, said something about it. You know, or I think I always knew that you know you could. Uh, you could uh, play with a metronome like on the on the ands, mm -hmm. you know, like a one and two and three and four and one and two. So it gave you offbeats. And, I, you know, because playing with it on the downbeat, a couple of things, um, you can't hear it. So you're always trying to listen for it and you can't hear it if you're burying the click. But um, I found that when the metronome was on the downbeats, uh, depending on how much work you do with the metronome, 
the machine can actually take control and complete authority over your own sense of the downbeat, meaning that you can play great with a metronome and a click, but you take that sucker away and you're missing your anchor. You're missing your clut, your crutch. Mm -hmm. You're like, uh, uh, and then you start to float because you've, you've basically been training yourself to follow. Right. Right. You're training yourself to follow the click. Now it might help you with your time, obviously, but uh, there's also the possibility that you might just be learning how to follow a machine so that when you're playing with, say, other people who move around, they can push you forward or backwards. Mm -hmm. So I started playing with the, on the offbeat so that now the downbeats, the one, two, three, four, one, two, three, that was me. Now I controlled the space between the two things. And it became almost like a pendulum with one and two and three and four. And so it got me to get a kind of a flow going with the quarter note pulse. And then I started going, well, let me see. Can I, oh, yeah, I wonder if I can move this to a 16th note, you know, so you get, uh, you know, one E and that two E and that three E and that four E and the one, two, three, four. Right? So I started doing that. I can do it now. I've been doing it now five or six years. But when I first started, it was a disaster. It was all, <laughs> all over the freaking place. I couldn't play one bar in time to save my life. No. And they're thinking, what's going on? Why can't I do this? What the heck? It, my time. I was just – it just pulled me. I, I, I had to really focus. Yeah. Once I started doing this, my focus now went up another level because it, it kind of frustrated me and challenged me all simultaneously. I was like – why can't I do this? I should be able to do this. I've been playing drums long enough. I should be able to do this. And why can't I? I must master this, right? Right. So I, I sort of got the Bruce Lee challenge vibe going, <laughs> and I had to learn it and master it. So I, I started working with that, and then I started you know, doing it uh, on the, the triplets, middle triplets, last triplet, one and that, two and that, three. So if I was playing a shuffle, don't. Just felt like a guitar player going on a on a on an upbeat, and that made it for me made the the um, my practice thing more uh, musical because I it felt like I was relating it to a, a rhythmic uh, source somewhere else. If I wasn't playing the music, I could mm -hmm. just play with this and really lock into a groove, which in turn made me feel even more solid with my time. And then I started recognizing, whoa, you know, if I rush or I drop a 16th note, I mm -hmm. thought, Jesus, that happened to me live. If I'm, you know, we were moving around. So I started really kind of working down. I mean, and, and that's not to say that, you know, time shouldn't move around. We are human after all. We, we don't want to be machines, right. I, I don't think, anyway. So I think, uh, you know, we're, uh, we want to still make it musical and breathe. But it, I just felt, a, 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 I guess it improved my sort of sense of strength mm -hmm. and my own downbeats and my own quarter note pulse uh, really being clear, stronger, and uh, played with even more conviction so that when I played in and around the time – 
I understood things a little bit deeper. It took me to a new level of understanding of rhythm, I think. Right. There's, I've never actually done that exercise. What I've done, I've done sort of the jump off points. So like if you're just mm-hmm. playing a groove and then, you know, you start your fill on the E of one or the N or the, you know, and then going that way, which is challenging, but, but you can take the stuff of grooving with the upbeat, then you're yeah. all, and then your jump off points are on the, then it's like, <laughs> now I'm going to try you, that now. <laughs> it trains you to, as I say, it, you have to up your focus, mm-hmm. but it really trains you to listen and be, and that way you're less, because if you're hearing a, a, a secondary rhythm going against what you're playing, it helps you not be thrown off if other guys are playing syncopated stuff. Right. They can't pull you as easy. You can, you, you can go, oh, I, I know what you're doing. You're a 16th note away from my, my groove. I understand that's what's happening. And then uh, it just, again, as I say, it just helped me sort of strengthen what I already knew and took it to a deeper place. And then I started getting crazy with it, right? I, I started, one of my favorite things to do is to do it at 30 BPM on the last triplet. Yikes. Yeah, right? So, I mean, if, uh, let's see, right? So, ding, 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 and the two and the three and the you know so i started you know pushing myself to these new heights and again doing that it became like a a form of zen meditation for me Mm -hmm. where i felt incredibly powerful and strong at slower tempos slow tempos used to bother me now i'm like i love slow tempos and playing like a slow, medium gra- jazz burner, ding, 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 it's like I feel so much more solid when I do that because I guess I've been doing more work at the slower tempo. I mean, yeah. let's face it. The rest of the world is trying to get faster. I'm trying to get slower. Yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> Slow down. There's something to be said about just playing a groove at 30 or 40 beats. It's hard, man, and making you feel good. That There's so much space there. That yeah. it's so uh, it's hard. It's just you know, I, I you think. Slow... No, go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say when you slow down, it widens your perspective. Mm-hmm. If if you're burning through things, you're going too fast. There's a lot of stuff you can miss. Yeah, it's like going on a train or or, or you know seeing going on a train. You're whipping. You can say, oh, what was oh, you can't see anything. But if you're going on a horse and buggy, people people are laughing. You're like, wow. I never noticed how beautiful this field was or I never saw that before. That's amazing. You know, yeah. you just you notice more when things are slower. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you play drums at 30 BPM, you <laughs> you can be uh, darn sure that you're going to uh, pick up on some of your flaws. Yeah, and 100%. Hold out, my, left hand, my left hand, where is that? What is happening? <laughs> and you literally feel like you're coming out of your skin because it's so uncomfortable feeling all this space. You're trying to... You try and play things that you can play at fast tempos, slow. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's some of the hardest stuff I've ever done. But when I get it, some of the most gratifying to learn. And again, as I say, it builds your confidence and understanding of what it is you do in terms of accuracy and placement of every beat you play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere to hide. Nope. At all. <laughs> There was something that you mentioned uh, that I think that I think is good for the listeners to know about. You're saying you're playing all the time. You have kids. You're you know you have this teaching gig, all that. 
And sometimes you only get 15, 20 minutes behind the kit. And there are a lot of people who are in that situation where they're not, you know, shedding six hours a day. Um, and if you're, first of all, if you're in college, you should be shedding six hours a day because you'll never have more time to do it than you do right now. But if you're hey, like us, you have jobs and wives and kids and all that kind of stuff. Uh, what do you suggest? Well, two things. One, I think that people say, well, I don't have an hour to practice, so there's no point in practicing. So they don't practice. Um, but if if we can convince people, yes, 20 minutes is, is better than nothing. 15 minutes is better than nothing. What do you? How do you approach that, and how do you suggest that other people pr- – because it's like I have all this stuff to learn and all this stuff to practice. What? Where? I only have 15 minutes. What should I be working on? Well, I mean, first of all, I think if someone says I only have an hour to pl- practice, I'd be going, that's fantastic. How lucky of you. All right. An hour? I have a whole uninterrupted hour? That's genius. I love that. Um, and, and I love that you mentioned 20 minutes because from one of some of the readings that I've been doing lately, there's a great website, bulletproofmusician.com, and they apply uh, – this this guy's a, 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 a psycho uh, – sorry, he's a, 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 he's a physiotherapist kind of slash – doctor slash you know he's, he's got a whole bunch of things that he takes care of but they use sports uh, psychology and they apply it to music and one of the most fascinating articles i read was about the practice myth about the eight hours and that kind of thing uh, according to scientific data as i understand it um our brains can only focus on one thing for up to 20 minutes max so if you're playing something longer than 20 minutes mm-hmm. say you're working on the same thing for an hour you've actually wasted 40 minutes because wow. you're you're no longer focusing on it your brain has learned what it is and your brain has taken over and you're kind of going on autopilot huh. you're no longer learning you're not really you can't focus on it the same way so this guy because i always thought i was a terrible practicer i do this and then i go new to this and i do this and i do this and this 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 i was all over the place and now this guy is sort of saying it almost validated what I the way I did it because I guess I was practicing being creative, but I was keeping my mind alert by refocusing at, at smaller intervals. Mm-hmm. So if I did something 15 minutes, then I moved on to something else, then I moved on to something else. People will go, that's really unorganized and really unfocused. But all those moments were focused, and then I'd come back to something and restart it. Right. So for me. 20 minute intervals. If I can have 20 minutes, I can sit down and do one thing. You know, I'm going to, I usually just sit down and play. And, and if I mess something up at that point, that's what I'm looking at. Oh, what was that? I messed that up. Let me work on that for 15 minutes. And then with the final uh, question of always being, how does that feel? If it doesn't feel, I don't have it. If it doesn't feel good, I don't have it. Mm-hmm. It means I'm learning it still. I don't have it. Right. When I have it is when it automatically subconsciously appears in my plane uh, without me having to think about it. Because mm-hmm. if I think about it, I'm going to blow it right. because I'm, I've taken myself out of the moment and I'm now thinking in the future about what's coming next. And I'm no longer focused on what I'm doing right now or, oh, I blew that. And now I'm thinking about something in the past. Music, time moves quick. You know, everything's when you're playing a tune. Things move fast in the body of the song. So you always got to be focused in the moment that you're doing something rather right. than thinking ahead or behind. So if I'm playing, another another thing is if I, I find something that I like, I'm working on an idea and I come up with something, a new way to play the idea. I go, oh, that's a neat way. Okay, that's what I'm going to practice. So basically I sit down, I play for a little bit, and I wait for an idea to come to me. I, I guess I'm just kind of lucky that way that, um, I'm fortunate enough to have 
a lot of ideas, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because I'm sure some people maybe just sit there and they go, I don't know what to work on. But for me, I always I, I have I don't think I have any shortage of creative uh, ideas to sort of chase whenever I sit down. Right. I mean, a lot of it might be just the same stuff repeated over and over again, but I'm always working on how's this feel. My mm-hmm. ultimate goal is is to ask myself, no matter what I play, how does it feel? Does it feel good? Great. I learned I learned how to do something well. Right. Right. There's and like you said about practicing and going here and like working on this and this thing and then this thing. Like I mean, I've been my entire life. I've I've sort of struggled with practicing. I've never felt like I was a good practicer. I've and I've been you know I've been doing this for whatever twenty plus years. You know, and I still practice all the time. But I st- even to this day, I don't feel like I'm the most effective practicer in the world. Like I'm like, oh, I'll try this thing and then this thing and then this. Somehow I get the job done, but but I don't yeah. think I'm very effective. Uh, but I do like the idea of – or I do at least like the idea of knowing that I can't really work on something for more than 20 minutes or so because that's usually where I break down anyway and I'm like, you know, I'm not really paying – but I can get a good solid 20 minutes in on something – but I can't work on something for an hour and a half and then go to the next thing for an hour and a half and I just can't do it. That would be torture for me. Yeah. You know, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't enjoy doing the same thing over and over again, you know. Mhm. Yeah. 100%. So, I want to talk a little bit about um about the DVD. I also want to talk about the current projects that you have going on and and because I know that you do. You have your DVD, you're playing all the time, you have clinics, you you're doing master classes, you teach all these other things. Uh so let's let's talk about that a little. Let's talk about the DVD first because I'm interested in in the concept behind that. Um and then and then getting into some of the teaching practices and who you're playing with and all that. Okay. Yeah, the the DVD, I mean, it came around for a couple of reasons. Um, It started, I think, I was doing some research for school about a really well-known, legendary Canadian jazz drummer named Claude Ranger, who when I was a teenager, he was the he was the shit. This guy was unbelievable. This his four-way linear coordination was insane, you know, kind of mm-hmm. like a Jack DeJanet thing. And he had this thing happening. And, you know, so I was researching him online and I came I came across very little. There's one site that has some live recordings of him just tearing it up. But in terms of the guy's legacy, there wasn't really a lot of stuff left. And I thought, this is sad. This guy was incredible. And he re- he runs the risk of completely disappearing. You know, so I thought, wow, man, I want to I want to leave something for my kids so that they, you know, because they're young now. My daughter's five. My son's 11. Right. Yeah. I want them to, you know, 20 years, 30 years from now, you know, to go, oh, my dad. Yeah, my dad. He played drums. Here's some video footage of him. Here's some recordings. I want to leave something for them so that they know what it was that I spent my life doing. Right. You know, uh when I wasn't being their dad, <laughs> you, know, right. you know, why am I at the house? What am I doing? What is this music thing? I want them to see and go, you know, Hey, you know, my dad actually was pretty good at this. Look at, look at this, my dad, you know, so that they, they feel some sense of pride in, that, you know, their dad uh, tried to accomplish something and do something really well. Um, the other thing, you know, I've always sort of subscribed to the musician first drummer, second attitude, you know, which is the name of the, the DVD, as you know, drummer mm-hmm. first, Sorry, musician first, drummer second. Because I tell my students, you know, if you're thinking about music, then usually good things will happen. If you're thinking about yourself, then some good things might happen for you, but not the the whole thing, the whole the whole group as a whole. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the power of the of the many 
outweigh the needs of the one, right? To quote Spock from the Wrath of Khan or whatever Star Trek movie that was, right? And uh, so I wanted, I, I wanted, I wanted to sort of, uh, you know, I was getting kind of inundated with um, vid guys sending me videos on Facebook of chops and drum solos and super speed. And then I saw, you know, somebody sent me this stuff of this guy in his basement, you know, playing double quad kick thing with four pedals. What? And just, just it was like each pedal had two beaters. So when he did a heel toe thing, it was like, and I was thinking, these guys are trying to make drums an Olympic sport. Yeah. When I was, when I was growing up, I just wanted to play the records, play with a band. I just wanted to play music. But these guys are, you know, so my, I, I wanted to sort of say my little piece and sort of make it my anti, it's, it's kind of an anti-drum instructional DVD. <laughs> that, that's kind of the way I was looking at it, you know. I, I wanted to just sort of voice my opinion on what I thought was important in music for, for whatever it's worth in my little corner of the world to try and 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 say something like my favorite instructional DVD of all time is The Groove Is Here, Steve Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, I could watch that for days. Here's something funny that you had mentioned how you saw Bernard Party play and you were like, ah, right. like I get it. And then after a while, you sort of fell in love with it. I the first time I ever saw Steve Jordan play was on The Groove Is Here, and he was playing that Sheryl <laughs> Crow groove, and I was like. I don't really get this. I was like, it seems kind of lame. Like he's not really playing anything. And now I'm like, <laughs> it's so amazing. It's the most amazing thing in the world. You know, I'm like, oh my God, I was such an idiot. <laughs> exactly. 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 I think of all the drummers I didn't like when I was a teenager, you know, a guy like Don Henley or something. And I yeah. thought, man, he can play it. No, sorry. I thought that sucks. That's lame. And now I think I listened to take it to the limit and go, I could never play it that good. <laughs> yeah. That, the time is unbelievable in that song, and I know he didn't play with a click. And and I go, it's it's a flawless drum track. Yeah. I I couldn't do couldn't do it that good. Yep, it's amazing. Perspective, go right? Go, yeah, 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 total, totally different. But go ahead, you were I you were talking about the first time you, you was your DVD uh, or you saw the groove is here and yeah, yeah, and that was a big influence on me. And I, and, and I thought I want to do something like that. Right. I mean, I looked back and his is only an hour long, and I thought, ugh. Mine started at six hours and I had I whittled it down to four hours and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is uh, it's too long. And I remember actually thinking that to my wife before I because I was getting near to a deadline when I wanted it out because I thought it would be like a CD and be out in three months. And it took two years. Yeah. Right. I was like, oh, my God, I'm sick of this thing. I hate looking at my face saying <laughs> the same thing over from all these angles. I remember saying to my wife, I can't put it out. This sucks. This uh, is the lame This is the lamest shit. I mean, and I'm being serious. I came this close to not putting it out because I thought, oh, because I, I got too inside. Like I lost complete and utter perspective about any of it. Yeah. I knew the playing was good, but I thought everything I say is like, oh, my God. It's just <laughs> what am I even talking about? I, it, I'm, I'm just tired of hearing it. And and I and I said I can't do it. I can't put it out. I know I spent all this money. I'm sorry, but I can't. I can't put it out. People, when they see that if I put it out like this, people are going to be so disappointed. They're going to go, "Oh, Mark's probably got a great DV," and go, "Ah, oh, geez, that's disappointing." So I came this close, and she said, "Look, you got to put it out." Yeah. She kind of pushed me over that that precipice, and then I pressed it, 
And one of my students, a uh, young kid from Colombia, Juan Carlos uh, Medrano, says, Mark, your DVD is ready. I heard. Can I get one copy? And I was like, you know, OK. I felt bad taking money for it. I was embarrassed. I, I was kind of like, here, OK, <laughs> listen, please. Like when you watch it, I really want an honest perspective because I can't tell if it's any good anymore. And he must have gone and watched the whole thing because he called me back like five hours later. and says, Mark, I love it. It's fantastic. It's incredible. And I was like, okay, okay, no, no. Now tell me, tell me what, what you really think. Okay, thanks, thanks for that. But tell me what you really think. Right. Where are the parts that are really bad? He's like, what are you talking about? I said, this is incredible. It's got so much great stuff. And I was like, no, no, re- seriously, like, come on, level with me. Don't, don't, don't blow smoke. You know, I want to know if, if it's not good because I can't tell. Right. And, and tell me, tell and, me that it sucks. So I can, you know. Yeah. That, I was kind of looking for that because that's what I honestly thought. I just couldn't tell anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, uh, and then once he said that, I was like, oh, are you, are you serious? You know, you, you think it's good? He says he loves it. And I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, all right. Okay. And then I started this. People started buying it. And then a little Facebook kind of campaign had started going where people going, oh, you, Mark talks about great stuff on here. This is awesome. You got to get this DVD. And I was like. I still kept waiting for the, 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 the kind of the attacks like oh, this. I, right. You know, I just kept waiting for that because I thought it was going to come, you know. And uh, and I thought, OK, and it never really came. So I felt very fortunate that I was able to get something to squeak by and put it out there that people liked that. That was kind of cool. You and know? I'm glad you did. <laughs> no, well, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. But I said say I was very close to not not doing it. I guess, you know, probably everybody gets cold feet because mm-hmm. you're really putting something out there that people can, can shit on. They can just go, this sucks. Yeah. Or dismiss, it, right. They can yeah. just dismiss it. Well, I mean, that's easy, but that's easy to do though. I mean, it's sort of the, the Roosevelt quote about be, the man in the, the man in the, in the arena. You can't, if I, if I'm in the arena every day and I'm getting my ass kicked, you sitting on the sidelines have no right to judge what I'm doing. You know, right. like, I mean, I've had people email me and they're like, your podcast sucks and you're a douche and all this <laughs> stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> thanks, I guess, you know, like, uh, uh, I mean, it crushes you when you read it for a second and then you're like, you know what? I'm like, whatever. I'm, I'm doing it. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing, right? You just keep doing it because there are people who will like it. Right. And, and you know what? I learned a long time ago you can't please everybody. Hell, I remember when I did my, my that for Drumio thing, I was like watching it and it first came out and I was like, wow. And I'm reading down the comments and it was like, hey, this is great. Love you. You know, and, and then I was like, hey, uh, this is good. People like this. <laughs> yeah. I'm feeling good about myself. And then, then it started to go, this sucks. You know, yeah. what are you talking about? Shut up. And I was like, what the never it never fails it's like what is going on and i was like damn and then i went on because uh, my, my my good buddy larnell lewis yeah. i knew he had done a whole bunch of drumio things and i went over to his and i was like did these people do this to him too and it's like and i could see a hundred dislikes i'm like what yeah Who, how could they just like this it's like this is craziness yep. and I just went you know what don't read the comments yeah so i never do yeah, it's I like, stopped reading comments because there's always someone out there. It's like that guy at the drum clinic standing there like this. Impress me. Yeah. Impress me. And you're like, dude, I, I'm not here to impress you. 
Right. I'm ultimately not here to impress you. If, if, if you're here to learn something, hopefully I can teach you something or give you something that walk, you can walk away from going, ah, I really like the way he said that. Because that's what happened for me when I saw people or listened to people or heard them speak. I'm always looking for that one gem of an, a nugget of an idea that I go, ah, bing, I love that. I'm, I'm keeping that. Right, 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 right. I think that the criticism, I mean, everyone's a critic. You know, like you go into the Steve Gadd video, like this guy sucks or whatever. It's like... It, but what I do, I actually look at the comments because if anyone has something nice to say, I'll be like, "Hey, thanks, you know, thanks for checking it out. I appreciate right. it." But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna uh, indulge anyone. So if they're like, "You suck," "You're an idiot," or whatever, I'm like, "Okay, that's that's, you know, I'm not gonna yeah. get, I'm not gonna get into a, an argument yeah. over YouTube with some guy that I don't know or girl." You know? <laughs> well, yeah, right. So, so social media has given everybody a voice, and I guess you know, there's a lot of unhappy people out there. Yeah. You know, 100%. So, so do you teach privately as well or do you, um, I, 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 I teach full time. So I'm here at the school every week during the school year. Um, you know, nine to nine to four, uh, four days a week I play. And I don't know. I mean, over the next four months, I'm playing with 23 different artists. It's insane. So it's a lot. I know. Right. Uh, Good for you. Uh, I, yeah, it's just that's I counted because I was doing I was doing my website going. Ding, 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 ding. I was like, how many bands are on here? Because I would always say, well, in any given year I play in, with twenty five different groups, and I thought I was highballing it, and I I went, oh my god, in four months I'm playing with twenty three. Wow, so it must be more than twenty five. That's good. So I do that. I play full time. Uh, I have my family, my kids. I have a home recording studio. I lead two of my own bands, the Jazz Exiles, and I have a jazz a small jazz trio. And I'm also the artistic director for the uh, uh, the jazz room out in uh, Waterloo. I booked mm-hmm. I booked the I booked the club and bring in jazz groups. So it's a pretty full kick, uh, uh, plate. I have to be super organized to do all that. But um, uh, yeah, I'm 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 just kind of running around like a maniac, trying to uh, maintain a normal sort of semblance of a life. But you know what? I love it. I love, I love music. I can't, I can't stop. I, can't, I was going to say, isn't that what you're, isn't that what you're trying to do here? You know, like you want to be busy. In the back of my head, in the back of my head, it's like, it could be over any day now. People go, you know, uh, nah, I don't want to, Mark's too old. You know, he's not playing so hot. You know, I'm, right. I'm going to get me something younger, you know, and I'm thinking, nah, I, so I'm, I'm just want to max it out and love it as much as I can until it stops. Of of course. Well, I mean, you deserve it too. There's a reason why you're playing with, you know, what 24 bands in in 3 months, you know. There's it's not yeah. it's it's not luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, thank you. I mean, I I I I honestly I just want to try and do a good job. I just want to I want to play the music. I want to keep everybody happy and and I I love it. I love it more now than I did when I was a kid, which I, really? I'm not sure I've say that i love playing music and playing drums now i still maintain that youthful exuberance that i had for the love of this instrument and the love of playing playing music and i guess maybe because i see how 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 people are struggling and i realize man i i am lucky to have made it this far and i'm still going you know guys have been gone and you know and or guys are out there going man i got no work or whatever and i'm thinking geez uh you know, I'm 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 pretty bu- busy booked. So I I just look at it. I I must be doing something right. Yes. I must yes. be doing something right. I I think you are. I know you are. <laughs> Not that my yeah. opinion matters, but I I would say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, well, I appreciate I appreciate it. Of course, man. You know, I, I respect music. I respect playing with great musicians. You know, mm-hmm. 
And uh, that is what I love. I love people talking about a passion, but I don't even know if I could say it's a passion. It just is. Right. It's it's what I have to do. One hundred percent. It's it, 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 every day and every morning I get up. It's like, man, I'm gonna play music today. It's awesome. Yep. You know. And well deserved, man. And I want to. Uh, one, I want to thank you for, for taking the time to chat with me today. And two, uh, thank you for all the amazing stuff that you put out there. Not only, not only, you know, the DVDs and, and things like that, but just the energy that you put out and, and the vibe and the, the constant thirst for knowledge and always looking to get better. And that message, when you say that and it goes out to everyone else, they realize that they too should continue on this journey and, and keep pushing and keep trying to get better. So I applaud you for that. And I thank you for, for putting that message out there to, to the drumming world. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, when you called me, I was like, how does this guy even know who I am? This is like so weird. <laughs> and then you said, but my name had come up a couple of times. I was like, really? Yeah. You know, in the states how does he know me it's so weird <laughs> that's but i guess that the drumio thing really kind of helped level uh, you know uh, boost my uh, uh people knowing who i am but you know so but but thank you for having me it was, it was great course. chatting to you great meeting you yeah likewise and, uh, do you go to nam i do all? i do yeah i'm there every well, year uh, so okay well maybe next year we'll, we'll get to actually meet in person that would be great but yeah about what you said, putting positivity out there. Absolutely. Let's look at the world, man. The world is a bit of a woo, little yeah. rough right now. And I guess it always has been to a certain degree, but mm -hmm. we just see so much more of it now on the, on the internet and TV and what have you, yeah. you know? So I just think that we really need now, or as always, we need people to stay creative and, and, and spread positive, positive energy. And I think playing music, I always love the fact that playing music that I always felt that I was not, I was always doing something good for people. Yeah. I was taking their, their worries away or making them dance or just, just giving them a break from the daily drudgery of their, their lives just to come in to hear music and they go, I feel good. Mm -hmm. this, I enjoy this. Or I always felt good to be a part of that process to, to try and make people enjoy their lives a little, not a little bit more, you know? Yeah. And I think yeah. that's important with what we do as musicians or artists is just, you know, kind of, keep that positive energy going because music is a powerful energy, you know, in itself. So, mm -hmm. you know, the way that things are, it's, it's getting tougher, but we still got to do it. Yeah. We still got to put stuff out there, you know? Mm -hmm. And we do appreciate that, that you are continuing to do that. And I'm, I'm with you. I, you know, music's the only language that we all speak fluently. So we gotta, we gotta keep that going. We gotta keep the world, you know, make, keep making it a, a more and more creative place and to sort of help people, you know, deal with the, the daily, like you said, the daily drudgery of, of life. So we do appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And, um, Mark, thank you again. It was a, it was an absolute blast having you anytime you'd like to come back. Uh, I would love to have you and hopefully I'll see you at NAMM. Awesome. Good deal. The pleasure was mine. Thank Mark, you, man. thank you again. Cheers, brother. All right. Bye-bye. So that about wraps it up with Mark Kelso. I hope you dug that. And for the links to how you can connect with Mark and all the things that we talked about in this episode, visit drummersresource.com forward slash session 269. Also, don't forget, you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash magazine and get a free six month subscription to Drum Magazine, print and digital in the US and digital outside of the US. That's drummersresource.com forward slash magazine, six month free subscription, no strings attached, no nothing. That is our gift 
to you, the listener, as a thank you. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I mean that. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.